Welcome to another episode of Surface Tension. This is the podcast where we explore ideas and notions that we encounter. Today we have an exciting guest, uh, someone that we've been meaning to bring in for a couple weeks now, Professor Gilbert Holder. He's a cosmologist and the Brandon Monica Fortner Endowed Chair in Theoretical Astrophysics at UIUC, and someone that was recommended by a friend, shout out Johnny Patoko, as a physics professor that would be able to bring interesting, cool concepts down to the layperson audience and someone that Johnny really enjoyed having as a professor. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Gil. Great. It's nice to be here. Thanks for hosting me. Let's uh, have some fun. Cool. Could you start off just by introducing yourself briefly? Yeah, so uh, I'm Gil Holder. As you said, I'm a professor in the physics department. I also have an appointment in astronomy. Um, I'm from Canada, originally from about an hour outside Toronto. So I went to school in Toronto and then, uh, well, outside Toronto, and then eventually did a PhD at the University of Chicago, kicked around doing postdocs, and then was a professor at McGill for 10 years in Montreal before moving to Corn Central, where I've been <laughs> since 2016. Awesome. Uh, welcome to the show, then. Uh, we're happy to have you. This episode, to provide a little bit of context, will be broken down into two parts. So the first part, we're going to get into a little bit of the personal side of physics before we get into the actual science and dive into a Gill's focuses, dark matter and dark energy later in the episode. So to kick things off, could you take us through your path to and through physics? What initially brought you to physics and what did things look like since then? Boy, you know, I was... I was actually kind of late into really liking physics. What I always thought was amazing was astronomy and astrophysics. Mm -hmm. And I just, I clearly remember uh, it was probably seventh grade or something. And it was Carl Sagan wrote this book called Cosmos. And there was a whole series that came after it was on TV. And um, so my dad was not, you know, I think he went to ninth grade or something, but he just loved to read. So there'd always be books lying around. And I just remember reading that book. And there was one section that was talking about white dwarfs. And how like a teaspoon of white dwarf material would be the m mass of Mount Everest or something. <laughs> and that all basically all the helium in the universe to a first approximation was made in the Big Bang. And I'm like, how is that possible? <laughs> and um, I just was just wowed by like astronomy and stars. It was so cool. And so, you know, I went through high school and people said, well, if you want to learn astronomy, you got to take physics because physics is part of it. And I went to undergrad and I even did, so I did my theoretical physics and I just thought it was really stupid until, it wasn't until I started doing upper level physics. I'm like, wow, actually physics is pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, I always loved astronomy, but I was just like taking my medicine forever. And then suddenly I realized that actually physics was nice too. And so that kind of made me secure that it was okay to go on and keep studying it because I wasn't going to just be taking my medicine forever. <laughs> it was good. Was the in, in taking your medicine were those the lower level polyan balls rolling down the, the ramp? That's exactly right. Stuff? The ball <laughs> rolling down a ramp, like who cares? Or a block sliding down the ramp. It's just like the block slides down the ramp. We all know that's what happens. And there's all these cool things that happen, you know, yes, it's true, and you, you drop two things and they fall at the same rate, and there's, like, cool things that happen every once in a while, but so much of it just seemed like we were just writing down equations and solving them because we could, and it's just, it was boring. Right. Like, where's the fun in that? Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Looking then, uh, once you became a professor at U of I, what did the process look like to become uh, the uh, 
the Fortner position, right? Your chair at the current, that's a tenure position. Yeah. How did you become a tenured professor? What does that process look like? Well, I was actually tenured at McGill before I came down here. So okay. the traditional, the process is you arrive as an assistant professor, and then after maybe six years, you submit your dossier for promotion. And that's where you have to say all the grants you've brought in and how many papers you've published and how many students you've supervised. And um, so then that goes to a committee and they make sure that you've done the right amount of everything. So mm. there's kind of an expectation that you've got um, a good stream of funding so you can right. pay for students and postdocs. Mm. And it's expected that you've written some papers that people read. Mm. And um, you have to be teaching at a reasonable level. And so as long as you can hit those marks, then you get approved for tenure. And at that point, you're, a, I guess, associate professor at that point. And uh, so that's when you have tenure. And at that point, it's effectively impossible to fire you as long as you do your job. Um, and well, you know, there's stuff you could do. Right. You know, it's like, sure. I think the main rule is don't touch them. <laughs> Pretty sure that's the main rule. Show up and do your job, but uh, don't do anything you're not supposed to. Mm -hmm. um, but And then after that, there's another level above that, which is a full professor. And I actually, when I was at McGill, I actually chose to not try to become a full professor. It usually happens maybe a few years after you're an associate professor. Um, but that's where you, those are the people that sit on the tenure committees and there's university committees for things like that. And I just, I didn't really have much interest and sitting on those committees. But mm. um, but then I was at McGill, and so there's uh, the, the Fortner chair. So there was uh, this guy, Brand Fortner, who was actually an alum of UIUC, who uh, made a lot of money off of effectively, you know, the first generation of uh, browsers. So he was at NCSA when Mosaic, you know, the first web browser. Right, yeah. So the first web browser was Mosaic, which happened at NCSA. Cool. And then there was, you know, the next generation of all that stuff. So Brand made a lot of money on that. And that was when he was a PhD student. He was actually did a lot of that when he was shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. And so he donated a lot of money um, probably 20 years ago to establish this uh, endowed chair. Mm -hmm. So an endowed chair is um, it's basically it's so the, the funding, I don't know, it's like $2 million or something. And that throws interest. And then that's money that. So I get a little slush fund of some amount of research money that I can spend. Mm. And so an endowed chair is like an extra special professorship because it comes with research money. Mm. So normally we have to get all our money from external funding. So this is enough to pay for, you know, maybe two students a year or something, mm. which is nice. And so the old chair had retired. And so they were looking for a new chair. And mm. I looked around and I'm like, hmm, that looks like a good yeah. job. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds and like it. Yeah, and so then I made the move down here, and no regrets. It's been great. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess, like, another question that we have is what uh, does your day-to-day -day look like? What are the, like, some of the realities of being a theoretical physicist as working as one? Um, you know, day-to-day, -day, I think most people's day-to-day -day is very similar, right? You show up and you've got like your list of things to do. Um, so I'm like a technical guy, you know, astrophysics is pretty technical. So, you know, my list of things to do for my, me personally is I'll have some project where I'm trying to calculate something. And so my day-to-day -day is the first thing I, I do is I try to take like maybe 20 minutes and just do some reading on some things that I'm trying to get caught up on. Right. 
Um, and if I can debug a little bit of code, I have like you know Python installed, and I'm trying to run stuff there. Um, but after that, it's just you know it's a lot of a lot of the work of a professor for research is mainly management. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got six grad students and two postdocs that work with me, and you know they've got stuff to do. They're working on their projects, and we got to just make sure that everyone's making progress. Right. Doing the right thing, and mm. um, you know we, we're writing papers, and you're so we're editing each other's papers, and um, so like you know the small scale stuff of I think just about anyone's job is very similar, right? You just have your list of things you got to get done, um, and so the thing that's a little bit different is that you know aside from the so that's the research side, and then the teaching side is so we I lecture twice a week. And so twice a week, I have to make sure I have all my ducks in a row for lecture, get everything ready, get there ahead of time to make sure the demos are ready to go. Um, but, you know, I've always been impressed how a lot of people's jobs are very similar day to day. Yeah. Um, and the only thing that's really different is kind of the big picture of, so big picture, I'm not trying to cause some hedge fund to make 40% in a year. <laughs> Instead of doing that, you know, I'm trying to figure out how the universe began. Right. Which, so... It, the, different picture. The big picture is very different, but I think if you were to ask, you know, some version of me in a parallel universe that instead of staying in academia, went into finance... I was just going to ask what you would do if you weren't in academia. <laughs> <laughs> the day-to-day, -day, I think, is very similar. And so I actually almost... Um, when I was finishing my PhD, I was very close to moving into finance. Mm -hmm. Because this was right around, so I graduated 2001 with my PhD, and that was before these, um, you know, quantitative, what financial engineering, I guess, is what it, you know. Yeah. So th firms. that wasn't a thing. So it used to be that a lot of the people doing all the numerical calculations on Wall Street were actually people that had been trained in math and physics right. and engineering, and people weren't going into that stream straight out of finance because they mm -hmm. just didn't have the math skills. Right. And so there were a lot, at that point, they were hiring a lot of physicists in general and astrophysicists in particular. Mm -hmm. And I knew, I had two good friends who were on Wall Street, and one of them had, was already reasonably high up in Goldman Sachs. So it was like, I was pretty sure I had a future that way if I wanted to go that way. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, well, you know, I really like, I like what I'm doing research-wise. Um, but, you know, that's a pretty interesting problem. Like, just if you think about it, understanding the ups and downs of this super complex multi-dimensional thing like it's an interesting problem and I think what made me think it would be an interesting thing to do is be just because the day-to-day -day operations are almost the same mm -hmm. it really is true that the thing that um, my friend was doing on Wall Street was day-to-day -day very similar to what I was doing calculating the evolution of the universe in terms of like your day-to-day -day operations mm -hmm. and the only thing that was different was like the big picture that was motivating it but, like, you don't get up in the morning and think about the big picture, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> you think about the crap you have to do when you get to work. It's true. Um, and so you can't, you know, you have to just make sure that you're motivated by your day-to-day -day operations and you want to find jobs where you like the day-to-day -day work. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, and so, in, you know, in the end, it was, it was one of these situations where I'm like, well, I really like this. This other thing would be great. And as long as I am enjoying my day-to-day -day life as a scientist— then I may as well just keep following it because, you know, it's cool to think about the evolution of the universe. So why don't I do that for as long as I can? And then, um, 
you know, I figured eventually if I have to get a job doing something else, I'll just find something I like. Absolutely. I think like one more thing on this topic. I'm curious then, do you a lot time within your week to study new developments in your field? How do you make sure that you are on top of what's going on? Um, so that's, it's hard to do that. So I find the best time to do that is by traveling to other places. So the one thing that we do a lot of is we go to conferences. And so COVID kind of killed a lot of that. Mm -hmm. But there is kind of a culture of you'll, you know, I'll go to a meeting somewhere or I'll go to give a talk. Like right? these at colleges or? Yeah. So there'll be, there's different forms. So sometimes there'll be a meeting just um, at some central place. Like in a couple of weeks, there's a big meeting in Minneapolis where a good chunk of the physicists in America are going to converge on Minneapolis and spend like four days talking to each other <laughs> and then disappear. Um, or, you know, so just before spring break, I went to Harvard to talk about my results. And so, but you show up somewhere and they host you for the day. And so you talk to a bunch of people and it's just, it's a good chance to just get out of your comfort zone and ask questions about stuff that's not what you're doing. And for me, that's, the best time to really learn new things is to actually talk to the experts and be able to ask them directly. Moving then to the idea of communicating these ideas to lay people, is there ever a time where you have to communicate the research that you're doing to someone that would be responsible for funding your research or other people's funding? So for example, I'm thinking about Congress or the Department of Energy, they fund different projects. Do you ever have to communicate to people that are not technical or not science-backed in terms of their understanding of what you're doing? Um, so it's definitely something that um, our community has to do. Um, so it's not something that I've done much of personally, um, but you know, I've been very close to the level where I was you know, on the list of people where they were looking for volunteers and I ducked. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there's, you know, some of these projects can cost a billion dollars. And um, if, if you want a billion dollars to do some science, you should be able to say why in language that uh, Congress, someone in Congress can understand. Um, they've got a bunch of things to think about. And so someone can explain why you need a road to be improved between Nashville and Knoxville. And <laughs> I should be able to explain why it's super important that we find out what the universe is made of and how it's going to end. Yeah. And Transitioning, I think, perfectly to what we're going to be talking about today, looking at dark matter and dark energy from a lay person's perspective, even though you haven't done that in front of the government defending <laughs> a billion dollar project, hopefully today we'll get to the bottom of what dark matter and what dark energy are, is and why they matter in general. So we're going to talk about dark matter first. Um, okay. I feel like there's a lot of confusion that's floating around on the topic. Uh, it sounds kind of ominous and we all don't really know what it is or uh, <laughs> have, either haven't heard of it. Um, but I guess the first question then is, um, what is dark matter? Yeah, well, I don't think it's ominous. It's actually almost the opposite of ominous because um, so as far as we can tell, what dark matter is, is something that has basically no interactions with us other than through its own gravity. And gravity is the weakest of all the forces. So it's actually the last thing you should be worried about <laughs> is dark matter. That's the last thing that's gonna get you, so don't worry. Um, so it, it's just, it's very strange. It seems like something like 20% of the universe um, is made up of 
some kind of thing that acts like matter, except it doesn't in any way interact with anything that we can control. It doesn't interact with magnetic fields or electric fields. It doesn't shine in light. It has almost no interaction, as far as we can tell, with anything that we have any experience with. Hence, it's dark quality. Hence, it's dark. So then, if it doesn't interact with anything that we can test it with, how do we know that it's out there? So we only know it's there through gravity. Um, so you can imagine if you were to take the sun and just throw a very, very sturdy sheet around it, um, <laughs> it would still be true that just from the gravity of the sun, the Earth would continue to go around the sun. Right. And it would, you know, every year we'd make that trip. And that, and since we know how fast the Earth is moving, we'd be able to say, well, there must be some giant massive object at the center of our solar system that is causing the Earth to be orbiting around it. And so we could say how much the sun weighs, um, even if we didn't, even if we couldn't directly see it. And um, so instead of doing that on the scale of a, our solar system, if you were to do that on the scale of, say, a galaxy, you can look at um, the way that stars and gas are moving around inside a galaxy, and the fact that the galaxy is not basically flying apart says there has to be a certain amount of mass there. And then you just say, you get out your, your pen and you say how much mass is there, and that mass turns out to be something like five times more than what we can explain just by counting up all the things that we see. And so what that says is that most of the mass in our galaxy is not made up of stuff that we can see. Right. It's instead made up of something that is dark. And hmm. then you start saying, well, what could it be? Right. Hmm. So from my understanding, then dark matter is kind of like this network of matter that can't be seen or felt or really anything or tested that's out there that's supporting a lot of the universe in the way that it's structured and how it sits. Um, I guess, why then should we care about it? You said it wasn't ominous. What should people um, think about when thinking about why it's important? Um, well, I mean, it's, it's what's holding a lot. That's what holds our galaxy together. So just as a basic thing, it's like, okay, well, if 20% of the universe is there, we don't know what it's doing. We should probably figure that out. That seems yeah. like a problem. <laughs> um, so there's just like a basic thing of like, what is this stuff? Like clearly there's something going on. There's something going on in the universe that we don't understand because we don't interact except through gravity. Um, like there's more, the more practical reason is that it's actually, it turns out that this is the main, um, without dark matter, we would not be here today. So that is, it seems hard to believe, but... Um, <laughs> it was it, like a pretty important reason. <laughs> it seems like a pretty important reason, right? And the reason for that is is because it doesn't interact with light or regular matter. Um, and the problem is that regular matter interacts with light very efficiently, as right. we can see looking at each other, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and if you run the clock backwards on the expanding universe, so today the universe is expanding... So things are getting further apart. Right. Well, in the distant past, things used to be much closer together. And, uh, you know, if you take some, you know, your tires warm up as you run, as you drive around, just because you're constantly getting compressed. So when you compress things, they get hotter. Mm -hmm. And so the early universe was quite hot. And how hot? Well, um, so what we can say, just because from the fact that 
most of the helium in the universe seems to have come from the Big Bang. That says that at some point the universe was effectively like an inside-out star, that the conditions of the early universe were basically like the center of our sun. <laughs> and the center of our sun, you know, so we're talking it's something like a billion Kelvin um, and pretty dense. Warm. Uh, and so when things are that hot, like you can imagine if you were somewhere that's a billion Kelvin, uh, everything's just been vaporized and pulverized and spread right. all over the place. It's high pressure. And so if you were to start with some small fluctuations in the little pockets of normal matter, those would have long ago been obliterated by just the extreme conditions of the early universe. Hmm. Um, and by small fluctuations, those are kind of the clumping that we see with planets. Well, or right. So... Um, so, you know, basically any small clumps would have been obliterated to reasonably high precision mm. on the scale of however big the universe was at that time. And so then you run the clock forwards and then eventually the universe cooled down enough that that stopped being a problem. That eventually the pressures dropped and suddenly the light stopped interacting so vigorously with, ma with normal matter. Mm. And at that point, then you could get gravity could pull together any two lumps. So if you had a lump of mass here and a lump of mass here that was somehow left over, gravity could pull them together before the extreme radiation basically just blew them Obliterated apart. Obliterated them, right. Um, but if you say, how old was the universe? You know, so when, the, when that happened in the universe, so then you say, okay, then we can start forming things. But then you say, well, how big were the clumps that were left over at the end of this obliteration? Mm -hmm. Those clumps are pretty small in amplitude. And if you were to then say, well, we only have gravity that can pull these things together, there would not be nearly enough time in the, you know, piddling 14 billion years we've had to have gravity pull these things together. Hmm. Um, but if instead... Because um, gravity is such a weak force? Because gravity general? is such a weak force. Hmm. Exactly right. Okay. Um, but if instead there are some small fluctuations in the dark matter, well, the dark matter doesn't get pulverized by the light. Hmm. So as a result, there are still lots of fluctuations in the dark matter on small scales. Hmm. And so that they can just continue to steadily grow and and then they don't get washed out by this, the early universe. So they're still there. And then the normal matter can slowly funnel in there. And it just gives a huge head start on the gravitational contraction of all these little lumps. Hmm. And if you instead... You get out your calculator and you say, well, how long would it take for some small fluctuations of like a part in 10 to the 5? So some very small fluctuations and you just let that go under gravity. You can actually form galaxies and within those galaxies you form stars hmm. and around those stars you form planets. <laughs> and then that planet forms and then somehow some magic happens and you get life. <laughs> but um, And then podcasts. And, and then you get podcasts. <laughs> and so it's – but. Um, without that dark matter skeleton, none of that has nearly enough time to have happened in the 14 billion years we're around. Mm. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's pretty wild. To think that is wild. <laughs> um, I guess what then are recent um, experiments that people are using to observe um, dark matter? And like, what's how successful are they? Um, I know we've talked about gravitational lensing um, to use as kind of a map. Um, could you talk us through some of those things? Yeah, so we're we're extremely good at mapping out where all the dark matter is because you can just measure um, deflections just from stars going around in places or even as light goes past some l giant lump of mass, it actually gets slightly deflected just by its own gravity. Right. 
So, you know, E equals mc squared. So that means that everything that has energy has an effective mass, mm -hmm. which means it responds to gravity. Um, so you can map out in reasonably high precision exactly where all the mass is. So it doesn't tell you what it is. It tells you where it is. Yeah. And so, you know, one stream of trying to figure out what's going on with dark matter is to see if there's some uh, fundamental fuzziness to it. Because if it was somehow fuzzy, that would almost make you think that maybe it interacts with itself. Mm, right. That maybe it's, you know, it starts to contract and then it starts to bounce off and then maybe it'll just get stuck. And so that's one path. So I have a student who's working on that. Mm. Um, but there's been, so that's one thing is to just be trying to map it out wherever we can in the cosmos. Um, the other way to do it is people build these experiments on Earth that say, well, we're all in the same universe. Surely it can't be completely non-interacting, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's got to be some interaction. Right. And so then, so what people do is they just get a large collection of material that they understand, and they just look for something strange to happen. Mm. And... Um, so this has gone to some pretty extreme situations where people can get almost a ton of material, like literally a ton of, say, liquid xenon or something like that, right. and just outfit it with a whole bunch of detectors and then, you know, make sure it's super pure so that nothing strange should happen, like, you know, basically have it all be the same isotope, and then just watch it. See Just to see what happens. See. Hopefully yeah. something will happen. Something will happen, right? It's got to interact. Like something's got to happen. And so, you know, you write down the list of all the things that could happen to a giant tub of liquid xenon. And um, so what they found is, okay, well, you have to worry about cosmic rays. So they put it way underground. So you put it at the bottom of, a, you know, a kilometer down or maybe more. You put it way underground to insulate it from cosmic rays from space and, you know, from the thermal variations during the day. So you do that, and then you shield it, and you do all this stuff, and it's a triumph that they've managed to basically have a ton, basically a ton of material sit there for basically like a year and have nothing happen. That's, that's <laughs> right. So they, they so it's, a, it's a triumph that they did all for this, and literally nothing happened. Yeah, that's uh, like, engineering marvel. And so dark matter was not observed then. That <laughs> not only that. was dark matter not observed, nothing was observed <laughs> that was in any way out of the ordinary. Okay. And it's like we have accounted for every single thing that happened to the ton of material over this year. It's like that's pretty amazing. Like <laughs> as an engineering triumph, that's amazing that you can like imagine trying to control anything. Right. <laughs> at that level, a ton of material and understand everything that happened to it for a year. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. But, you know, they didn't see dark matter, which is what they were hoping to find. They were hoping to see something, you know, a dark matter come in and ping off one of the xenons and send some track. And and so um, and so that puts some pretty sensitive limits. So there's still, you know, ways to improve on those experiments. But it's a tough way to go is to just, you know, watch something and wait for something weird to happen because, you know, you go to Green Street, something weird happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean because it's, it's not dark matter. Um, I guess then you mentioned that the universe is expanding. Is this where dark energy starts to come into the conversation? And then kind of balling that up, I guess, what is dark energy? Yeah, that's exactly where this comes in is... Um, so we know that the expansion of the universe is happening. So things are getting further apart. 
and they're doing it in a very particular way that it's almost, you know, imagine you take your JPEG and you grab the corner and you just expand it and everything has gotten, everything in that image is now twice as far away from every other spot. And instead of being a JPEG, our whole universe seems to be doing that. It's just someone's, some benign, or, well, I'm not even getting into creators, <laughs> uh, you know, that somehow that whole thing is just expanding except in three dimensions instead of two. Um, and uh, so that's, that goes, you know, that's been a hundred years. So the universe is expanding. However, the universe is made of material and material gravitates, which means you would expect that um, there should always be some slight tug between adjacent galaxies, right? right? That even though they're getting further apart, while they still are feeling their local gravity, so the expansion should be slowing down. That even if it starts expanding, it should slow down just because gravity is kind of acting as a drag on that expansion. Right. So it started as some expanding state. Who knows why? Gravity slows it down. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's and so you'd expect it to fully stop then at some point, or well, so it depends on how fast it's expanding. So you should think mm-hmm. of it as throwing a ball up. So you throw a ball, and if you throw it at low speed, it'll go up and then stop and come back down. Right. But if you throw it fast enough, then the gra- gravity of Earth is not enough to have it come back. Right. So it'll just keep going. So there's an escape velocity. So similarly, there's kind of the equivalent of an escape velocity for the universe, which is if it's expanding fast enough, the gravity wouldn't have been able to pull it back together again. And it would just keep expanding forever and always slowing down a little bit. Got it. But there was some critical speed where if there's enough matter in the universe, then the universe would stop and then there'd be a big crunch is what it's called mm. if it recollapsed. And so for um, so in the 90s, some someone did an experiment where they were trying to measure exactly the rate at which the universe was slowing down as a way to be able to estimate how much matter was in the universe. Mm-hmm. And this is related to this dark matter problem that would tell you really how much matter there is in the universe if you could measure how it was slowing down. Mm -hmm. And instead of it slowing down, what they discovered is that the expansion is actually starting to speed up. Hmm. So it's like you're expanding that JPEG and, you know, as you're dragging it up, it starts to slow down. But then recently, someone started stretching it faster. Hmm. So what's going on? And that's where dark energy comes in. <laughs> and so you think about what would cause that to happen. And, you know, your initial response is, okay, well, that seems impossible. You know, if imagine you throw a ball up and it starts to stop and then it starts to slow down and suddenly just rockets away. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, that's weird. <laughs> um, pretty weird, yeah. So, but what was discovered pretty quickly is that actually there's a pretty easy way to make a universe do that. And um, it's if you, if just empty space had some small energy attached to it, if every time, so if you just had, imagine you took the emptiest part of space and you were to just have like a, almost like a thermometer, um, it doesn't have to say zero. You could have, you know, quantum mechanics says things can pop in and out of existence all the time. And so there's some energy that you might think is attached even just to empty space. And so if there's any energy attached even to empty space, then that's going to have gravity. And um, in that case, like, so imagine you drop a ball. Well, when you drop that ball, that system is becoming, is having like more gravitational binding. Okay. So, you know, when things get tighter together, they're more gravitationally bound, right? You can imagine mm-hmm. if something's closer together, it's harder to pull it out. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the natural state of things is for the gravitational binding to increase. Okay. 
So when two things collapse as they're getting tighter together, well, um, instead of having the universe get smaller, if you actually just added more energy to the universe just by expanding space, so you expand space, there's now more things interacting. And so that means it actually becomes more gravitationally bound to itself by making more space. Hmm. And that's dark energy. So it's just, if you make more space, it'll be more gravitationally bound than if there was less space. So the arrow of gravity is to just, left to its own devices, just starts blowing the universe apart. So it just wow. takes the universe and just adds more and more space everywhere. And all that new space just has its own energy attached and it becomes more gravitationally bound. And so that's, and that got named dark energy because mm. we don't really know what it is. Um, so there were early calculations of this effect that go back if 60 I could years. Really quick. Yeah, yeah. So it's not, so gravity usually is something that pulls things together, right? How you normally think about it, like pulls the ball back to earth. Yeah. But in this case, because space itself is expanding and there's more energy in empty space, which I think we should cover a little bit. <laughs> if it's empty, why does it have energy in it yeah. in the first place? Then yeah. that that energy is causing the universe to expand more quickly. And I think I didn't follow completely. Yeah. Gravity binding is, why does that cause it to expand more quickly in that case? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to understand it just in terms of a ball falling down. That um, it, it makes more sense if you're thinking about um, um, just either increasing or decreasing that gravitational binding energy. It's just exactly like wh what, what it means to be either more tightly held together or looser. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's, there's kind of a sense of gravity just wants things to become increasingly bound together. Mm -hmm. And if you think of it as having the universe be more tightly bound to itself, the way to do that is to just have the universe be bigger. If you have just more of that energy, that energy is the... So even though everything's further apart, mm -hmm. if you can actually add more universe faster oh. than the distance between different bits are increasing, right. then it becomes more tightly bound. Got it. Because the energy in the system, the gravity in the system is big enough to where it's more tightly bound even though the system itself is bigger. Exactly Got right. It. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So then why... Similar question to dark matter. Why should we care about it? Why why, why should someone that's listening to the podcast go back and tell somebody else about dark energy? And is this one ominous? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, um, <laughs> right. So this one could be ominous. Okay. Um, so what is, what is controlling is the large-scale expansion of the universe. So um, – one thing that's going to happen is if the expansion of the universe continues to pick up speed. Um, so there's currently a process going, you know, so our galaxy, we're in our galaxy. Our galaxy and Andromeda, we're currently falling towards each other. And then on slightly larger scales, we're in this local group. Um, and so in the absence of dark energy, that would continue to scale up, that we would just continue to grow into slightly into larger structures. Um, but the when you the expansion of the universe kicks in, this what's going to happen is the things that aren't quite yet bound to us will never become bound to us, hmm. which means the large scale structure of the universe is basically going to just freeze into place, hmm. and instead of things continuing to become slightly more complex, eventually everything's going to just freeze. If dark energy is just the most boring thing you could imagine, hmm. so if dark energy is just every bit of space 
has some amount of energy attached to it and that doesn't change forever, then slowly everything's going to freeze out. The universe is just going to expand forever. Um, and eventually we'll just be in our own little island and we'll never make new friends. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's kind of depressing, but it's not horrifying. Right. Um, the horrifying thing is if that, um, if there's some process at work where the amount of energy that's attached to any little bit of space has this property where the amount of energy in empty space increases with time, then that means going forward, the universe is going to start ripping itself apart. It's going to start adding space more vigorously. Hmm. And um, there's a tipping point where if it's always true that you add, if that amount of energy is increasing in time, then it'll become energetically favorable to eventually rip the entire universe apart. So as in eventually we will get ripped apart by the expanding universe given enough time. And that's every piece of matter will be ripped apart? That the in, fabric of the universe itself will be? That in principle, if the amount of energy that is attached to empty space just keeps going up without bound, mm -hmm. eventually that's going to get to the point where that, you know, the molecules in your body, it would be energetically favorable to have you dissolve. <laughs> um, oh no! <laughs> that sounds pretty ominous. So that's called that's called a big rip, and okay. we think that that's most people will say that the physics doesn't make sense for okay. that to happen. Okay. Because you can't just have the energy associated with empty space go up without bound forever. That would be weird. Um, so we think that it's we think that it's unlikely to be even physically possible. Um, and if it is happening, you will have hundreds of billions of years before you are getting ripped apart. So if you can make it hundreds of billions of years, good for you. So we're not going to die. <laughs> this is not what's going to kill you. Okay. Sounds it. good, yeah. Um, I just have a personal question that I want to ask. Is there any sort of perceived use case for either dark matter or dark energy? Is there anything that it can be, like right now we don't even have it or even have seen it, but if we were to gain access to it, is there something that it could um, improve here on Earth? Um, I think more likely is that the tools that people build to search for these things will end up having um, practical applications on Earth. Hmm. And I think that that's kind of the normal flow is that, um, you know, if you have a scientist who's really interested in a compelling question, they will develop whatever tools they need like to tank. get the answer. What? Yeah, like that big tank. A ton yeah, of yeah. xenon. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, you know, and so, yeah, like in that case, they had to learn how to purify, you know, they had to become better at purifying xenon than people who purify elements for a living because, wow. you know, they needed a ton of this stuff purified. And when you have to do that, that's a different scale, right? So, you know, when you do these experiments, if you're sometimes you're driven by this kind of slightly non practical issue, but you have to solve real practical issues to get it done. And sometimes you're going to be more driven to do that if you're driven by understanding the evolution of the universe than you would be if it's just on your list of what to do before Friday. Right. Um, now, that being said, like there are, there's always a case where DARPA will occasionally fund people that are trying to figure out if you could use, if you could somehow manufacture dark matter and detect dark matter well, we just said how hard it is to detect. Like, boy, you could send some pretty super secret signals this way, right? Right. 
Um, so if you could manufacture dark matter and then detect it, you could like send signals through the earth that would be completely undetectable by anyone that doesn't have a dark matter detector. So, you know, there are people that will periodically get funded by the defense industry because, you know, if it works, that'd be pretty right. useful. Let's wrap it up there. I think we can summarize quickly what we covered today. We talked a little bit about your personal side and your travels through the world of physics. We then went into dark matter and dark energy, breaking down what they are, why they matter. One is ominous, one is not. <laughs> we hope you could tell which one is ominous and which one is not after listening to this episode. Thank you so much, Gil, for hopping on. It was a pleasure for both of us. And I think we're really excited for all the listeners to gain access to this content. Great. It was good to be here. Thanks, guys. Hey, are you still listening? If so, you've reached the end of the episode. As usual, you can find all of our updates on Instagram at surfacetension.pod and look for future releases on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.